Hey there, welcome to Narrative Society. My name is Josh Bull and I'm so excited to be sharing this podcast with you. We live in a world full of stories, but our life is telling a story. And so that's what this podcast is all about, finding the power in our stories. And so in this first season, I want to share with you a little bit of my story, specifically around death, grief, and loss. So make sure you subscribe and get ready for the Narrative Society podcast. It's going to be a good one today, guys, because I have one of my best mates, Austin Duffy, joining us on the podcast Recently, he got to travel to the Polish and Ukraine border to firsthand see the refugee crisis and everything that's taking place there right now. Uh, So this conversation is just a firsthand account of real life stories of the refugees uh, and a community of people coming together to try bring relief and aid. And uh, the conversation that we got to have was uh, moving and heartbreaking and inspiring and just all of the above. But I love this conversation because it's kind of you can watch news online, but it's a whole nother thing to just hear real stories. And that's the heart of narrative society is finding the power in stories. So I'm excited for you to hear this conversation from one of my best mates. Austin is a phenomenal husband, dad, pastor, and just a good dude. Uh, And so lean in and listen to this conversation with my mate, Austin Duffy, about the refugee crisis. Old Duffy, he's on the podcast, mate. Hey guys, how's it going? Mate, I need to give you credit at the very beginning of this thing because uh, with Narrative Society, without you, this thing doesn't exist. Come on, please. We, uh, we sat at a coffee shop one day, old ECB, and you said, you need to do this, Bully. And then you said this one line, there's uh, finding the power in your story. Mm. And that cultivated this, mate. I'm still waiting on my royalty check. It's coming. Once we get, <laughs> once we get some form of a check, we'll begin. Yeah. But I uh, wanted, wanted to get you on, mate, because uh, really your story is pretty fascinating, specifically over like the past month. I don't know however long it's been, uh, specifically around like Poland and Ukraine and uh, you got the chance to go to the border and, and see. And so you and I were just chatting. I thought it'd be cool to jump on the podcast and kind of have just a couple mates talking about it and just a place to, you were at our house a couple of weeks ago just telling us stories. And I was like, man, this this conversation needs to live online so people can hear just like what you got to see and just kind of practically what you're getting to now be a part of helping people in this crisis. And so that's kind of where I thought it'd be cool to have some of the conversation today. I would love I would love to share about that and and I really appreciate uh, being on. Thank you guys. Yeah, man. So what I, what I thought would be cool is just to just tell us like how did you practically end up at the border? Like what what was sure yeah everything that took place to man I'm going on a plane to get to the border and just tell us a bit right. of the pre story. So um, it was uh, now I could I could mess up this day actually. In my head is February 24th. Um, it may have actually been. Um, I think it was February 24th. It was a Thursday. It was that Thursday that if you remember, it was when, you know, you would have woken up and maybe you would have seen on Twitter or Instagram or somebody text you that Russia had fully properly finally invaded Ukraine and in quite a dramatic way, lots of bombing all over the country. And I remember waking up early that morning to go and do something and seeing the text come through and thinking, oh my goodness, like this is actually happening. You know, I guess... Um, I pay a, enough attention to know that there was stuff going on. There was high tensions, but I don't think anybody fully saw that happening at that moment the way that it did. And I just remember that morning kind of going about my business and it being in the back of my mind and thinking, oh my goodness, like what's going to happen? What does this even mean? But, you know, it was so fresh. And then that afternoon on, on that Thursday, I heard somebody say, yeah, the they're, the news is saying that um, they expect a million people could leave Ukraine. It's crazy. You know? And the first thought I had when I heard that was, oh, my goodness, like, yeah, of course they will. And they're going to go to Poland, which was the first thought I had. And then not only that, I was like, oh, my goodness, they're going to go to Helm. And so Helm, you can look it up on the map. It's C-H-E-L with a line through it. M um, is a town that's not too big, not too small, right uh, about 15 miles past the border of Ukraine. And it's where a lot of my family lives. I'm married to a Polish woman named Natalia. We met when I was working at a church uh, in England. We went around the world a little bit together before we came back here and have lived here for almost five years now, yep. four and a half years. And uh, But we go to Poland all the time. I was there at, at, at Christmas uh, 2021 through the beginning of January. And um, this town is just so close to Ukraine. There's a lot of Ukrainians there. And it just dawned on me, okay, 
it's about to be on in yep. Helm because um, Ukraine is getting obliterated and they're going to be leaving. They're going to be probably first going to Poland because of the proximity and because of the cultural um, consistencies between the two nations, the history. And this was, you know, it hadn't been 24 hours, but it was just already pretty obvious. There's going to be a lot of people going to Poland. And so it was that first night I was already talking to Natalia and saying, I don't know what's going to happen there, but is there going to be refugee camps? Is it like, what's going to be going down? I was like, I don't know. I got to go. Like, yeah. um, you know, I'm I'm uniquely positioned to get to to be a, a pastor and be a pastor at a church that has resource to be able to do things around the world. And um, so it, it already felt the freedom and started thinking, what a unique opportunity um, that I could potentially take some time and go and help find ways that our church could be involved there or just people from this area, because when you see that stuff on the news, if you feel so hopeless about it, you yep. feel so disconnected because there's, you, your heart goes out to it. But it's like, what can you even do? Mm-hmm. You know, you could, you could cut a check to the Samaritan's purse or Red Cross or, or whatever, but um, it, it, it very rarely living in America hits anywhere closer to home than that. Perhaps you have a Ukrainian friend, perhaps you are Ukrainian and you have family back there. That's a whole different story. Yeah. Um, but for me and for here, it was like, whoa, uh, there, there's going to be some action, but I didn't really know how much. So that's the Thursday. And then, um, you know, by over the course of that weekend, Friday, I was convinced I've got to go. You yeah. know, I, I don't know how I've got to go. And yeah. um, uh, I that day called my friend Vlad, who lives in Myrtle Beach. He has the same kind of job that I do with the New Spring, but at a different campus. I live in Anderson. He lives in Myrtle Beach and he's from Ukraine. He moved to Ukraine when he was around 10 and so he speaks Ukrainian, um, and I was just like, he would be so helpful. His heart was obviously bleeding for his, a lot of his family still there right now as we speak. And so I called him and was like, bro, I'm trying to go. You want to go? I don't even know what we're going to do. Yep. But I know of people that are about to be helping, and maybe we can get alongside of them. Um, so that, that Saturday, I sent an email to like the lead team of our church and said, hey, here's what I think we could do. And long story short, about the rest of that weekend, on Tuesday, we were on a plane. It's crazy. So it was really, really quick. Yeah. Um, kind so of. I, I remember on that Friday, I'm I'm sitting at ECB looking at the news and just feeling like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. Feeling like, what can we do? And then I text you like, hey, what if we got a prayer, prayer meeting together that Sunday? And you're like, yeah, dog, that would be awesome. But I'm going to the board. I was like, all right, that's next level. <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of one of those things where everybody is going to have situations in their life where it's like, you know, you've, it's just on a tee for you to do something, right? You know, it's not, it's not, um, it's not every day that something like that happens and there's such a clear Avenue. And so it was just like a, yeah, it's going to be inconvenient. Yeah. It's going to be a sacrifice. Yeah. There's a lot of unknowns, but, um, it was, it was almost obvious to me. Mm -hmm. It's like, and through the course of that weekend, I should say in talking to my family over there by the Friday, there was already refugees sleeping in the church. My father-in-law is a pastor, um, of a, of a Baptist church in Helm that has quite a big building and they had already gone with their own money and bought uh, a couple hundred mattresses at the at the start there was around 25 50 75 it was kind of growing every night um refugees that were learning about this place ukraines are coming through and telling their friends come here to this place because it's just past the border people here can go and get you you can stay here for a night or two get a, a fresh pair of clothes, get a shower meal, and we're going to try to help you get somewhere else. Yeah. So by the time I got there, this place is already, we're sleeping anywhere between 150, 200 people a night yeah. in this church, just stacked. It's crazy. Um, I, I post pictures on my, my Instagram is at Duff and Stuff. If you want to go and see, there's just photos of, of um, the chapel uh, slammed with beds Yeah. And, and people sleeping there. And it was just the immediate response there wasn't even systems there wasn't great times just we're going to getting people we're giving them a place to stay and we're trying to help them get somewhere else yeah in that early stage when you were about to leave like you put a few of us in a in a group chat kind of saying hey we're doing this undercover not telling too many people that we're about to go for like safety reasons and everything but you were sending us some photos and i never asked you this question but like what was it like just going to America, like you're in America, you're going to the airport and you're just getting on the plane. Like what were some of the thoughts like running through your mind as you're about to, you have, don't really, like obviously you know it's kind of crazy, but yeah. like you have no idea really what you're about to see. What uh, was running through your mind in that that little journey like? It definitely was weird. I was in, we flew, the way there we flew Atlanta to Paris to Warsaw and we were in the airport in Atlanta, me and Vlad and I've hung out with Vlad only a handful of times, but there's also this um, 
like as soon as we were together for 30 minutes, it's like, oh, this is the longest we've ever been by ourselves together. <laughs> or about to and go we're about to spend 24 seven for the next, you know, however many days, uh, seven days together. And so there's an element of just like, am I in a dream? I'm in the Atlanta airport with Vladimir Malinsky. And I, I'm like, why, why are we here again? What's going on? Um, and it was very confusing. And then one of the kind of, um, there's two things that happened that even as we're getting on the plane in Atlanta, that kind of like jolted me into, oh, this is again why we're doing this. There was this random ginormous man who was trying to make a big deal about how uh, how long he had gone without wearing his mask in the airport without somebody getting on to him, which was just kind of funny. And he started talking to me and Vlad. He was drinking a white monster and a beer at the same time. Nice. And he was ginormous. And he was with this other guy. And we just started talking. And they're like, what are you guys going to do? And we're like, or where are you flying? We're, like, we're flying to Warsaw. And they're like, oh, we are too. Oh, bet. Like, oh, why are you guys going? Where are you going? And it was, uh, it became clear. Like, this guy started to tell us how he is a hired mercenary. He makes his living going to Africa, um, like, hunting down poachers. He's gone to different, like, war situations all over the world it's to nuts. go and do different things. And this lawyer had hired him basically to try and go and get some kids out of Ukraine. And wow. we were talking, we were standing in line in Atlanta talking to them. We're all going to the same place. So we're like, all right, yeah, let's have breakfast in Paris <laughs> together. We're getting on the plane or chit chatting about stuff. And then a completely different guy um, says to me, he's like, Hey, give me your number. And I was like, sorry. Like he was behind me. He's like, yeah, can I have your contact? It's like, a, just a grown up, well put together guy. And I'm like, sure. So I just tell him my phone number. I mean, that's not like that private. Right. So then he texts me and says, like, hey, heard about what you guys are doing. Um, you know, just eavesdropping. I'm, I've got some people working on the same stuff. I'm headed there as well. Let's connect. Uh, I Google this guy's phone number, find out he leads this huge mission organization. Wow. And it was just like, whoa. Like, um, very cool, actually, to see whether it's you're a hired mercenary and you're going to get some kids out and you just care or you're also another kind of missionally, Christian missionally minded person, like seeing – there's people responding to this and as we're, we're on the front lines in a different way. And, um, it was encouraging to me and it also put in perspective, like, okay, like we're going to do a thing. Now I had to talk this missionary off. The, I mean, this uh, mercenary off the ledge cause he at one point had told his buddy like, Hey, I'm actually going to go with these guys for a little bit. <laughs> He's like, you're going to need, uh, you're going to need protection. protection yeah. With what you're doing. And I'm like, ah, like, yeah, we're going to be okay. Like <laughs> I didn't want to get stuck with this dude, like bringing him to my in-laws house. That'd like we're, we're, we're a church, we're pastors. We're not like, he's like, you, you, you guys got people that are going to be able to get you armed when you get on the ground. I'm like, uh, this is not that kind of thing. <laughs> so that was kind of funny. I love it. And so what, what was it like? Just your first, um, I guess moments when you, when you land, you're on the ground, someone come pick you up. Like what, what was, yeah. what happened? So it was really strange because the, you know, laying in Warsaw, like I'd done just two months earlier, you know, mm -hmm. I had no anticipations of being back. Um, it's not weird to me anymore being in Poland. It's not even like, it doesn't even feel like that like kind of rush. Time. Yeah, I've been there so many times that I kind of, it, it doesn't feel that strange to be like if, you know, you had family back home somewhere and you you flew back. Like it, it, it feels like, oh, I know this place a little bit. So even from getting to my in-law's house and we got in at midnight, we went to the basement, we slept for six hours, we wake up. And, and hit the ground and we don't stop until we leave basically. But that first morning we walked over to the church that I've been in, you know, so many times. And actually I preached there uh, Christmas um, day just a couple months before, you know, to a room of 60, 70 old Helmians, like people yeah. from, from him. And you walk in and this place that like feels familiar. I mean, before my wife's, my wife's family lives in a house in the backyard of the church. It's like the backyards are connected um, this church is quite big. They have multiple apartments and different things in it. And when I first started dating my wife, Natalia is her name. I'll call her Natalia from this point forward. Um, she actually lived, they, they lived in an apartment above the church, like as a part of the same building. And I have been there so many times. And it's kind of this place that in my mind, I'm like, man, no, none of my friends and none of the world is ever going to know this place exists. It's like, it's at the end of the world. It feels like it's a, you know, kind of a small Polish town there's nothing special about it. No one's ever going to even think that this is going to have no significance ever. Right. And I walked into this church and it is flooded with Ukrainian refugees. The same ones I'd seen on my TV just a couple days before. And now that chapel that I preached in, there's beds spread across it and people are, you know, waking their kids up in the morning and trying to tell, you know, 
trying to tell him, hey, I talked to dad. He's okay or whatever. Like crazy. it was just, it was, it was so surreal to have a place so familiar to me be completely around. You've got news people everywhere. It's like, <laughs> how is this happening here? Um, and uh, yeah, so very, very, I, the, you walk in, I walked in chapel. I started weeping straight away. Um, it's such a it's such a raw scene, you know. People that are truly so desperate, so fresh, um, very powerful. Yeah, I can't even. Yeah, it's hard to just imagine what that was it's like. Very strange. Just seeing a church become yeah a refugee center of people in dire circumstances, and I want to touch on that more in a moment. But it was something I was just thinking about, like your story of you've spent time around the world in India and on so, all sorts of missions trips, but. How do you think like your previous like life experiences kind of shaped you to be, I guess, helpful in that moment of whether it was in India, living in a different context or just like, I just think it's like, man, sure. this crazy moment and you're just, how do you respond in those, those moments? Um, you know, it's very specifically, obviously understanding enough Polish and how Poland works was super crucial to being able to be an American and just show up. Now that doesn't mean that people who don't couldn't, um, and that would be the same for Vlad with just having like experience just being somewhere else. But I think in principle, you know, the stuff that I was really, um, drawing on was definitely just this kind of adaptability that I think everybody has within them. But I think when you travel, it, it humbles you in, in that way. And, um, there's a certain grace that's required to be able to step into someone else's culture and into their situation and be helpful and not act like you've got it all figured out. I can't tell you how many um, missionaries or things like that I've seen America come in as the big, great savior of whatever, and you come in and you start trying to call the shots and be like, well, I've experienced work. I work at a mega church. I know da 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 You're walking into, to, to be honest, quite a primitive situation. You've got a lot of just volunteers. There's no staff. There's no structure. It's just the Wild West, and there's a, a a humility that's required to walk in and say, okay, I don't, I maybe I can have some ideas, but I'm not trying to come in here and be like, I'm the boss man. And I think I learned that through getting to do ministry in a couple different uh, places around the world where I, I see, you see very clearly, and I've, I've talked about it this way before, um, just the difference in uh, the culture of a country and the culture of the kingdom or the culture of the West, like everything as a culture. And we see Jesus like really established for us what the culture of his kingdom is like. And the example I've talked about before is like showing up in India and you have arranged marriage there as like the norm and thinking, um, you know, my young mind's like, oh, arranged marriage, bad. Because, and then I'm like, wait, wait a second. Like, the Bible's full of this. Hold on. Right. So just my Western ideas of how what I know is normal or right doesn't necessarily check out everywhere. And so being able to leave that at the door and walk in like really open-minded, really open-handed, really humble, and ready to just do whatever, ready yeah. to get your hands dirty, I guess would be the, the most great. general way I would say that. So once you're ready to do whatever, like what did you do? <laughs> like yeah. what, what, what do you do when you just come to face with such um, brutality and, and harsh circumstances like, How'd you guys figure out what to do? Well, I guess we had a little bit of an idea of what we were walking into as far as like some of the stuff they were doing. And we had to, because there's so much going on and it was so hectic, there was a different, there was a, a certain lens that Vlad and I sat down and like said, all right, we're going to make our decisions through how are we the most valuable here? You know, what are the things that we have that, what are the things that we can do that only we can do kind of thing so that we don't get too bogged down because there is a decision-making thing because you could really get wrapped up in a lot of stuff. Um, this is the very practically one of the things that we had that not everybody has there was we had a car. We rented a car. Um, we'd rented a car that had, you know, five seats besides our two. And that was very valuable because there's a lot of bodies that you need to move from people who've been standing in line at the border for hours and hours and hours in the cold. They need to get here. So having a car was... Um, something that put us straight away in line for, okay, you can run trips. They had volunteers and people coming. Um, there was a lady working at a desk. She was there nonstop the whole seven days we're there. She literally didn't change clothes the entire time we're there. She's running. She's catching 30-minute nap. She's coming back. Her name is Nadia. Absolute legend. Hero. Um, she uh, She's Ukrainian. She's one of the first people over, and she has dedicated everything about her life to try and get people out. Wow. So she had she organized this crazy system to tr where people are – 
passing her number around. They're calling her. She's on the phone all the time, and she's grabbing Vlad. Vlad, Vlad she's saying in Ukrainian, Volodya, because that's like a way you can call his name in Ukrainian. Volodya, and he, he would come, and they had a funny dynamic, and she would just be explaining to him in Ukrainian, like, and I'm stood there, like, I have no idea what she's saying. And he's writing stuff down. Okay, go here. Here's a number. They're going to be there this time. Ready, go. And it's like, boom, we're in the car. And I drove literally the whole time because, like, that was something that I could do while Vlad was on the phone. And, like, so we're driving to the border. We're trying to find people. I mean, the scenes are crazy. So just to answer your question, like, one of the uh, most practical things we did was we went and got people, which was such a cool way to to learn stories, to meet people, and to help people out because – um, some people knew exactly where they were going, what they were doing. Other people were like, what town are we in? Like wow. there was just all different yeah. kinds of, um, awareness depending on what your situation was getting to the border. So besides that, I'll just quickly hit that. We also, um, you know, had a bit of budget and we're trying to think what's a way we could help, uh, the people who are running this place because so many Polish people, I literally stopped everything about their lives to come in and take care of all these people. And so we, we set up an office for them so much office work that was going into this and people are doing on their phones they're doing in the corners they're they 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 don't have monitors they don't have a printer they don't so we were able to go in one of the afternoons we went and we bought them a bunch of laptops a bunch of monitors printer coffee maker security system and just like went and installed it all in this room and they're still using it like today like when i talk to them that's where they are it's kind of like their command center so yeah we set that stuff up we put together gift bags for volunteers for a lot of the people that don't even won't even work in that office um just a, a bag with uh you know with with a few things in it in a note and just saying you know thank you and you're doing amazing awesome. so stuff like that it's that's so so cool and I think it's also just as you're telling this to just I'm thinking in my mind like this is you're doing this all so fresh when it's happening like this is first week it was week first, one yeah, yeah week one so obviously now you guys have been able to find a degree of like some systems some process but I, I would love to just kind of go back to that it's amazing that you had wheels to go get refugees and I'm sure there's story after story you could tell of people that you picked up but just like my first question is like what was like the mood in the air at the border <laughs> it's the it's the the wildest cocktail of um, my wife and I call it happy sad when, when you're happy and sad at the same time it's like um, but that on you know times a million you've got people who are um, stepping into a country and past a border that now they feel safety personally Crazy. for the first time and their their kids are finally in a place where they can feel like you know they don't there's not a risk of a bomb dropping on them anymore so you have that relief coupled with the fact that you just officially left your husband behind and you don't know where you're going to go and you don't have any money, but you feel it's like relief and agony and trauma and joy and uh, just just everything all at once. It's 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 I've never seen anything quite like it. Yeah. Tell, tell us like some of the a story of just maybe a person you met at the border or like. What was it like? Like people yeah. just walking across a, a line and just <laughs> t paint more of a picture, I guess. Sure. Of, of so there's, a, I think, nine border crossings between Ukraine and Poland, and we were running trips to, to like our um, organization was running trips to three or four different ones. We primarily went to one, if not two, um, uh, of the of the crossings, and each crossing is a little different, but they all kind of work the same. Where um, there are places where you can drive through and then there's places where you can walk through. Now, most people are coming through on foot because they've taken a bus or a train to the Ukrainian side of the border and then they're waiting in super long lines and then they're literally walking across or sometimes they'd hop on a bus that would then drive them across the border and then drop them off like literally just on the other side Crazy. depending on um, what was happening. And so you got people literally like rolling their little suitcase with their family like like walking across what essentially feels like a bridge on land and they're when what they're met by is a storm of media people that have um accumulated from standing there over time there's people passing out hot dogs there's people passing out tea there's like all sorts of different things and the the vibe like at the border is um is tense but not it doesn't feel dangerous i mean you know for what it's worth, you've got lots of just women and kids everywhere. So it's dangerous in kind of a different sense, but um, there's a lot of great people there trying to help. And there's a lot of news covering 
different things. So yeah, that's kind of what it's like um, at the board. So when you pick someone up from it, uh, depending on how you, we got in contact with them or what the situation was, those first conversations sometimes were just trying to help them understand where we were going and that we're guys that you can trust. Right. Yeah. Because you know you just you've been through all this and now you're going to get in a stranger's car with your little girl. It's like and these two guys and. I think it did give us some credibility for us to be able to quickly be like in an American accent. You know, we're pastors from America. We came here. Let me show these photos of the church. Here's this lady's number. You called her. I know her. They're like, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about, um, I'm sure you could tell a story after the story of refugees that you met, but yep. is there any person that comes to mind that you picked up and just what was their story? Um, I, I've, I've shared this one a couple of times and I think it stuck with me so hard because it was one of the first people that we picked up and we had the longest amount of time in the car with her um i'll i'll tell three stories super fast um the first is um a lady named arena the daughter ariana we picked her up she did not know where we were going she wanted to go to warsaw we had to convince her like hey you can but you're going to need to go maybe tomorrow or later we're going back to helm here's where we're going and and when we told her that we were pastors and we showed her some stuff she was like okay she started to trust us it was like it's just a weird dynamic to be in, um, but the she was from Kiev, and if you're watching the news, they call it Kiev most of the time on the news. People there in Ukraine is pronounced Kiev, so I'll say Kiev, but uh, either way is fine, I suppose. And um, they uh, they they had been um, just enduring bombing for you know like at this point five six nights in a row, and they had a husband there, and she was telling us that every night she had to tell her daughter that it's just fireworks outside, baby. You know, like she was telling us that um, she was having to play worship music as loud as she could in her daughter's room. So, you know, we don't know if these people are Christians or not. It doesn't matter to us. But she's like, yeah, she was actually a part of a Baptist church too, which is kind of funny. Um, She was talking about all the different, uh, she spoke English better than most of the people that we picked up. Um, And she was talking about how she would just, Tell her daughter it's fireworks or celebrating something. Go in the other room with her husband, listen to worship music, cry, pray all night for a week because you're literally seeing like, oh, the building next to us is in rubble now. And it got to the place where her husband, you know, made her leave. It's like you cannot be here anymore with her. Um, and that's I mean, that's just one snippet of one story. There's there's millions like it. Another quick one is there's a, a lady named Ludmila and her uh, grandson Vladik. And we picked up them um, because we actually had to take them to a different location uh, from the from the transit center. We put them in a different house in a different part of Helm. And the reason being is that the two of them had come overnight with this lady's daughter and her other child. So Ludmila is the the grand the the grandmother and her daughter, and then two kids. Okay, Vladik is probably seven years old, and. Um, we were like, where are the other two kids? Well, or where's the other kid? It's a baby, 10-month-old baby, who had been on this train all night and had gotten so sick from the train ride that they had to take it to the emergency room as soon as they got across the border, and that's where the mom was. And we were isolating this mom and this son because of how sick they were. We didn't want that to spread throughout. I mean, all sorts of stuff spreading, but you're just doing what you can with every situation. And to put their story in perspective, you're thinking about, just a, a grandma, her daughter, and her two grandkids. And they had ridden on a um, train all night. They said that uh, they had, bef- between the four of them, the smallest little carry-on I've ever seen, okay? They had been on a train, what they said I think was 12 hours through the night with no lights on the train so that planes and soldiers can't see where the trains are as, as easily. And as people are getting on the trains, they are literally grabbing people's luggage and throwing it off to make more room for bodies because as they are getting on the plane, Russian soldiers from a distance are shooting at the train and there are literally bombs going off around them. Can you imagine getting, you know, like, can you imagine putting Eli and Taylor on a train and you've got to go grab a rifle and like, like that's, and then throughout the night, you know, you've just had whatever clothes you have thrown off. There's so many people slammed on this train, the not to be crass, but the way she said it was that, there, people are using the bathroom on each other throughout the night because where else are you going to yeah. go? Baby's throwing up. Um, 
So, you know, just horrific scenes. And this grandma, she doesn't know when she's going to see her son again. She doesn't know when she's going to see her husband again. She doesn't know if her 10-month-old grandbaby is okay in the hospital. Like, just one more story. Um, we we There was a, a group of people that uh, they were taking and putting at a holding tank because they had nowhere to go at the border. And all the majority of these people had some sort of special need, okay? And we were called by this area, by this this site and said, hey, how many people can you take? We have 50 people. Can you come get them? We're like, whew, okay, we barely can, but sure. So we start organizing trips. We ran multiple trips. One of the um, people we picked up that night is a lady who was blind and her friend who had a mental disability, and they were walking arm in arm. And so her friend with the mental disability couldn't really talk. She didn't have any of her front teeth, um, but she could see. And her the lady who was blind, her eyes were completely gray, um, she she could talk. And so they were almost like a cute little team. We had them in our car and they told us that they had been hiding at that point in the basement for seven days, stayed around out of food. They had, you know, nothing else going on for them and they just knew they had to leave. So they found their way to a bus. They rode a bus. They showed up at the border. They didn't even know where they were. They just knew they needed to be in Poland. Wow. They ne- they'd never been to Poland before. They don't know where they're going. All right. And, um, she was already on in the car ride. Like she can't even literally see us. Okay. And she's, Crazy. she's telling Vlad in, in Ukrainian, like, I'm a really hard worker. Like if you can find me a job, I can, I can, I've, I've worked jobs before. I know I'm blind, but I can True. do it. You know, people already having to figure out, not just like, where am I going to live? But I've got to figure out how to provide for myself. We were putting, you know, the equivalent of 40, 50 bucks, like in these people's hands as they're, I don't even know if we're supposed to do that, but people had given us cash going and we were like no better way to give yeah. it than to put it in people's hands. And they are weeping with gratitude. Like it makes you feel human again. Like, okay, I can survive another day. And, uh, that that's the short version of just three stories yeah. that are, that, that stick with me. And just to put in perspective, this is happening in the millions. You could have, have money and know exactly where you're going, or you could literally be a blind lady who has no idea where she's going. And every war does not discriminate. It doesn't care how much money you have, it doesn't care what color your skin is, yep. it just devours. It's horrific. Yep. And it's and it's real life, man. It's like as you're telling this, it just sounds almost like it's so hard to even fathom, like it's a made-up story, but it's just like this is real time, what's going on in the world. And for most people listening to this, probably whether in Australia or what, like America, like it's pretty safe and it's just like hard to fathom, but it's, man, amazing that you can share those stories. And so I'd love to then just even kind of you to peel back the curtain of what the vibe was like at the refugee center. I remember you showed us some videos of people singing and worshiping and sleeping yep. in there. And I'm sure it was just a, another cocktail of emotions again. It's but. kind of an extension of that. You've got kids playing um, in the corner, happy for probably the first time in days while you look to your left and there's a woman on the phone and she's weeping. You don't know why. Um, you know, you turn around, you got people trying to sleep. Um, you've got uh, people eating and laughing. You've got, okay, we're going to do this prayer service, so we're going to pray for what's going on. We've got a lady on the phone screaming, we've got to go pick up these people, go now. And um, the site itself was just an extension of that cocktail. And and it really, it's the fir- it was the first place people are even starting to be able to process the journey that they just went through. The crisis alone itself is horrific, but even the act of having to flee a country Think about it. I mean, that in and of itself is life-altering trauma, and you see people for the first time getting a second to and start to try and process it. Mm. Yeah, I got I got a question that that is probably going to be a hard one, but here we go. Sure. How how is like your what's your perspective being like being back as like a parent with with Zion, and you're seeing these little children and just like I don't know. (laughs) Yes, I mean, I guess it could. It could come off a, a bit cliche. The first thought it was just when I was going, like, I don't want to leave my six month old baby girl for, even for a week, to be honest. Like, that's hard. Like, but it was just so. I remember having conversations with her. She doesn't understand, obviously, but and it was almost like I could feel her say to me, This is, you know, complete made up, but this is what I kind of did tell myself. Was her be like, like Those, those kids can borrow my daddy for a week. They're not going to have theirs for. Who knows how long? Like, yeah. And I think that that was what I felt so strong was, if I was in the situation where I had where I was trapped somewhere and I had to send um, Natalia and Zion to a foreign country, 
I'd want somebody like me to go and get them and just give them, you know, give them a ride. <laughs> like, so it was that simple for me, I guess. And then I guess being back here, it does make you grateful. It makes you feel guilty. Um, it's a really, it's a, it's a weird thing. And, you know, and before we, before we get down, I'll speak to ways that we are able to yeah. be involved from the side of things. This is not just trying to chronicle like one week is one week that I think, you know, can help set a lot of different things in motion. But yeah, the parental side's for real. I mean, um, it made it, it, it was like, uh, when I was joking with Vlad, but even when I was there, like, uh, he was like, the way that you drive this car when it's just me in it. And then when there's a kid in here, it's completely different. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I was driving like a maniac. It was just me and Vlad, like cut yeah. people off. Like I got to go get these refugees. And then, you know, and then I got a baby girl in my back seat. And it's just like, okay, like I'm going to be a stand-in dad, even though I'm not going to hold this girl. I'm not going to change your diaper. I can't even speak the same language as this mom unless I'm talking through Vlad. Like I'm going to protect here for just one second. And yeah. it was an honor to get to do that in such a small way. It's awesome, man. Yeah. Proud of you. Yeah. <laughs> Tell um, me, uh, I would love to just, I've got a couple more questions about uh, while you, you're away. I remember you mentioning just like seeing other uh, pastors and people from different countries like coming on yes. the scene and just like yeah. it was so cool. You were talking about just like seeing this community activated. Just like share what that was like, just seeing people from different backgrounds, walks of life, come together, try help. It's amazing. Amazing the way that Europe has responded to this. Amazing the way that Poland has responded to this. Um, you had every day people showing up from all over Europe, um, huge, huge group from Latvia, lots of Germans, um, people from Italy, people from all over that what they're doing is they're getting these buses and they were often um, take just coming with a couple of drivers and they're driving through the night, you know, and they've got supplies on these buses and all these empty seats are just loaded with supplies to be given to refugees or to be sent back in Ukraine. And they're coming and they were unloading here. So we had to rent a ginormous warehouse that we still have and have huge operations. I say we because I'm, I have taken a, a, a bit of a responsibility within this charity that I've been talking about. Um, and they're unloading all of this stuff and then they're putting refugees in those seats and driving them back to Germany or driving them back to Latvia because they've had people in their church or in their community. Most of the, the people we were working with were churches, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and they're saying, uh, hey, we can we can take 60, we can take 20, we can take however many people, families, and th- there are refugees living in houses all over Europe right now for who knows how long. I was listening to a story um, just yesterday morning of, a, of an old lady who lives by herself in Warsaw who raised her hand and said, I can take a family in. And they were interviewing her and talking about how she's been sleeping on her couch and she's given the mom and the daughter her, her bedroom and you know she's just saying yeah they 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 can we know what it's like as polish people to be displaced because poland itself has been through so much war over its history well maybe not in this person's lifetime maybe depending on how old they are um so yeah just human beings responding um from every corner of europe and i think you know in the states too but just in a different way yeah it's awesome man and so unless there's more you want to speak to it specifically why you were in there like you and Vlad are preparing to come back to the states and obviously like you go into chaos and it's still chaotic but you find some sort of like a game plan of like this refugee center set up um and just like talk to us about what it was like hey see you guys later i'm going back to the states and and jumping on that plane returning home yeah it's weird um i think you know for both of for me and Vlad in different ways i can't speak for him but you know this hits him even another level when we're there picking up people from Ukraine and he still has family that are there and they're there for different reasons and you know that they're still okay um and uh but for me you know I was having conversations with Natalia like do we need to move here for three four or five months because this is quite a this is going to be going on for a long time guys the war could have could have ended today and I pray to God that it does. And there will be a refugee crisis in Europe for years to come because of this. Yeah. Um, just so many people displaced. The men haven't even left yet. What is going to be left of Ukraine? How are people going to transition back in? I mean, it's just a thing. Right? It's a massive, massive thing. And so there was a lot. It was a very like present daily reality, I think. Um, and coming back, you know, there's this like uh, guilt of I should still be there helping um, but then there was also a fresh perspective for me. The thing that helped me just to know, like, there's certain things that only that only I can do. 
and I've got this amazing church back home and this amazing group of people, and you know what? We can't actually raise money, and I think that it is actually making a huge difference, and that dollar goes pretty far over there. So you know what? It I'm going to go for I'm going to go and do that and then while I'm doing that ask God and talk to my family and say what do we need to do. So I think like even the first week back was honestly pretty um pretty weird because you you it was just one week, right? But you experienced so much and then you come back and um there's definitely that that I'm waking up in the morning and the first thing I'm doing is thinking of ways I can raise money for this or how are we going to get back or whatever. It was really hard to find like a rhythm of peace again. I mean, Natalia, like she was, she was, she stayed back with Zion and uh, all of this, um, but she was just as involved as I was. I mean, 24 seven, she built this website that I'll plug in a minute. She um, was all the time talking to her family, trying to figure out what we can do from over here. And it just became a, a huge thing. And I'd say, you know, we're about a month, away from that moment and um, right now as, as we're talking and it's still a, a daily reality for her family and so that means it is for us and the news cycle you know is, is holding out decently but it is getting less and less yeah. um, so that's why I really appreciate conversations like this just to remind people um, yeah. I think that the, the thing that I've thought a lot about is man there's refugee crises that have happened so so many times all over the world there's others going around their own going on around the world right now, like why is this one special, why is this one different? I don't know, but it's the one that, you know, there's a clear avenue for me to do something about it. So yeah. um, that that's what it looks like for us. A week after you you came back, like you and I caught up, we're at, we're at a friend's birthday party and uh, you and Natalia are just being heroes, like on the computer, still doing stuff for your family. We're, we're seeing your family on FaceTime, talking to them. And um but it was just so cool to like watch you guys as a couple like in action, like you're here obviously still supporting there. So tell us like you can get practical, like the the name of you guys set up this nonprofit that's been able to like sure. work with a bunch of other churches and just like tell us like on the backside, like what's now officially okay. being set up and yeah. and what that now looks like, what you guys are doing I, practically. I guess before I do that, I do want to say like one more thought about even in coming back because it's something that I've, I've worked out before having done missions in India or Belgium, wherever it's like, I know that I am literally not a single person's Messiah and neither is my wife and neither is, you know, our church. Like it is, uh, you know, I have no desire to, to trick myself into thinking that I'm a superhero. Right. And so I think that that's just one thing that you battle when you do that is to think like, it, it requires immense um, tension and that that points you to just trusting God and all of this to say, hey, God, you know, I'm available. Use me. Make it clear. I don't want to um, I don't want to push beyond what what you're asking of me, but I'm just going to be so available and so desperate to do that. So whatever, whoever is listening, like, don't feel like if you don't go to the border, like there's people I know that were at the border for that are still there that were there when I was there, like. It's not a competition. It's just everybody's got their own kind of piece of what you can do. And sometimes you can't do anything and sometimes you can do a lot. And I think um, being just seeking seeking uh, Christ in these things and what would he have you do is a, it's just a great filter to ask that. And so for us um, to get to get to the, the, the last thing here is we took what was an already existing, um, nonprofit called Baptist Charity Action. It's a nonprofit that existed in Poland. My uh, father-in-law uh, was the vice president of the Baptist Convention in Poland for a long time. The Baptists roll super deep um, in in Europe and in America. Like they have really strong connections. Uh, we are New Spring. The church that we're at is like a kind of Baptist church. We have roots in um, the Southern Baptist Convention. I would not call myself Baptist, I, you know, denominationally, but that doesn't matter, right? It was just a thing that already existed. And um, we were able to, because it shortcutted a lot of the government process that that it was going to take, not just my family, but a group of pastors from all over Poland just quickly revitalized this thing that already existed and said, this is going to be all about trying to help the situation. So it is called the Baptist Charity Action Poland. It has a completely different name in Polish, but we won't get into that. So if you want to Check out the website. It's bcapoland.org, bcapoland.org. Um, I would like really love it if you did. Just click around, and I'll quickly uh, outline the main three things that they're doing right now. That Refugee Transit Center that I talked a lot about, it is still up and running, and they're still 
um, doing that. It, they're, they're figuring out what it looks like with every wave and with every week, but it is a huge project. Still, the next thing that's taken up most of the time and resource right now is actually getting together supplies and transporting it into Ukraine. The people in Ukraine that are still there, supplies have been cut off in so many ways. I've been getting, uh, my brother-in-law has been driving into Ukraine like like he was there like every day for a couple of days uh, a week ago, um, driving trucks of supplies into different cities where they're then getting redistributed across Ukraine to be able to um, bring you know literal calories to people who are trying to figure out how to survive when they can barely leave their bomb shelter kind wow. of situation. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's a huge thing that money is going directly to sending in a lot of supplies in Ukraine. So they've got good operations going right now on that that's a huge project and then the, the third um, big arm right now has to do with orphans there's all these orphans and orphanages in ukraine that we're working with an organization called heart for orphans and one of their like regional ukrainian leaders i was with him all week in helm um his name is vitaly Sus, and he uh he's been working out of there with the help of bca to get orphans from Ukraine into Poland and then to other places so that they can be safe through the rest of this crisis. Um, like quick story about that. There was um, uh, uh, just last week, my brother-in-law went and they picked up a hundred ish orphans from the train station that had came from a city called Kharkiv, which is like, uh, like close to Russia. It's been absolutely obliterated. Yeah. And they came in what was supposed to be like a, like a 10 hour train ride or something like that it took them over 30 hours because all along the way, um, Russian soldiers are stopping them and they're coming on the train and they're looking and checking to make sure that there's no men hiding on there. They were telling the stories of there was, um, uh, you know, the women and men that work with the orphans, they were having to beg the soldiers say, I know he looks older, but he's 16. He's not under martial law. Like, he doesn't have any paperwork. Like, please don't take him because wow. they're taking people off the trains and doing God knows what with them. I yeah. think sometimes, um, you know, I, I can't speak. I can't speak to that, but I know that you know these are the stories of people coming across. Apparently, these kids when they got off the train in Poland, like they're saying "Polsha, Polsha," which is Ukrainian for Poland, and they're like, "We're in Poland. Are we safe?" Like, and then they're bursting into tears as soon as they because they've been they kept getting stopped, right? Yeah. So that's just one example of ways that they're helping organize getting orphans out of Ukraine. And I think that that group particularly was actually going to Italy to go and stay at either another orphanage or somewhere. Um, so yeah, we've got the refugee transit center, the sending supplies in Ukraine, the orphan stuff, um, all very very uh, practical ways. So bcapoland.org, there's ways to give there if you want to give. And what I would say is like, if you're listening to this, and I know how um, how cheesy it could feel, but I'm telling you like, if you went on that PayPal link and sent them 10 bucks that you wouldn't feel, it's not only the fact that that money is literally going to pay for people to eat, it's literally going to put gas in trucks that are driving food. It's literally going to make sure that that refugees have a, have a meal. It's not only going to do that, the support that they feel when they see, whoa, people haven't forgotten about us yet. Yeah. It doesn't matter the number. Now, I want to raise as much money as possible because I think that there is a huge, huge, huge need and I'm seeing it firsthand. If you uh, take my word for what it's worth, you can trust these people, you can trust this organization, this money is helping people. So go check out the website, go give uh, Go give 10 bucks. A lot of you could give more than that. Just ask, just ask God, if you're not a Christian, you're listening to this, just look at look at your resource and say, you know, what could I give um, and, and do it? And I believe that um, you'll experience blessing because of that. And if you have questions, feel free to reach out to me. I'm duffing stuff on Twitter. Uh, I'm duffing stuff on Instagram. I'd love to answer any that you would have about the organization before you wrote a check or or whatever. And if you have any issue giving, please contact me and I can help figure that out. It's awesome, man. And I would just encourage all of us like listen to this, that we can all play our part, whether it's small or bigger. But I wanted to touch on one last thing because uh, you and I were talking about this, of this idea of like $800 buys a pallet of yep. food. And so I'll, I'll let you speak to practically what this looks like. And let me put a little pre-ramble on it. Like, when, when you were sharing this with me, it's like, man, I, I kind of got, I'm a dreamer and think, man, what could take place? And we're going to do things locally in our context of, of the ministry we're a part of. But I would just say, if, as you're listening to this, like maybe you're in Australia or wherever, like what, just a group of friends who got together could throw a little bit of cash in and, and together and, and the amount of impact that we could have could be quite amazing. So tell us about yeah. this $800 pallet. 
Sure. So they, you know, there's a group of people who've been doing lots of research, lots of getting um, supplies in, and they've come up with, um, because at first it started with people are giving us these items, let's put them together and send them. But what we've also realized is that is so much to deal with as far as like trying to, you know, if you wanted to send a box of pasta to Poland, it's like, okay, that's just so impractical on so many levels. So they've put together prearranged packages with different department stores and grocery stores and stuff that it maximizes kind of like the lifespan of the items, the amount of calories that are in the actual food. Like it's a very thought through thing. And they're sending um, trucks that are filled with these pallets and they've gotten a price point like in each kind of um, like currency that they're dealing with. It's mostly like British pounds, like Polish Walte, like, um, you know, the euro. Uh, for for most of Europe, and then for us, it's 800 US dollars, kind of equals one pallet, and um, so that is something that if you wanted to try and go big and say, I want to send a whole pallet of supplies, like stuff that's going to provide for for multiple families for multiple weeks, um, you could get together with friends, you could try and sell something, you could you could put that on uh, on your social media and say, Hey, I'm putting up the first hundred bucks of this. Who wants to jump in? That's and that's something that we're about to. Um, get ready to push a lot to do over the next um, couple of months here. I don't know when you're listening to this, but um, over the over the course of April, that's something we're going to really focus on um, here in, in my space and just continue to uh, adapt to the crisis as it unfolds and pray for it to end. But know that, um, you know, it's it's as dark and as miserable as it is like, like we are able to be a light and we are able to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And I know that sending money can feel very cheap but know that this is a very practical way that you can meet a need. And I would implore you to do it if you can. Come on, man. Well, it means so much that you sit down and have a chat, bro. And, and this has been super helpful and I think just insightful and, and encouraging. And, and just, man, we can all play a part, whether we're living here or going to the border, everything in between, man. Yep. Let's, let's not lose sight of what's going on in the world and be a part of it. So, yeah, man, thank you for jumping on. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And, um, hit subscribe to narrative society (laughs) cheers man (laughs) bye hey i wanted to let you know i've got a free resource for you it's 22 books to read in 2022 so you can go to joshualbull.org to grab that and i'll see you guys on the next episode